Hey everyone, welcome to Rolling with John Lewis. I am John Lewis. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for uh, subscribing. Don't forget to follow me on all the socials at Rolling with John Lewis. And Rolling with John Lewis. Dot com is my website if you'd like to book me as a speaker, but feel free to message me and I'll be glad to work with you, you or your organization at any time. But as to, as uh, today is July 1st, I want to talk about for the Julians, um, what that means to me. I know we have a lot of stuff we still have to work on in this country, but we've got a lot of things, right? We've got freedom of speech, uh, although that seems to be somewhat under attack lately. we got uh, freedom of religion, and my uh, faith is very important to me, and I, I uh, have friends that have come from other countries and other parts of the world and they're so glad and so happy to be a part of this country. So what I wish people would do this Fourth of July instead of focusing on all the uh, things that make us different, let's focus on what makes us alike, where we can come together because I guarantee you we're more alike than we are different. And we can all find common ground uh, with almost anyone. Just gotta look for it. We have a great country, um, but the only way we can make it better is if we all are together and all try to come together and see each other's point of view. Even if we don't agree, I'm a Christian. Um, I'm a Republican. I'm a proud Republican supporter. Am I proud of everything that my party has done for all the time? No, but um, the Republican Party uh, fits mostly with the value that I hold dear. So, you know, nobody's perfect, but I'm just saying. And also, let's remember um, that the way we're going to make this country better is to uh, bring God back in the middle of everything. We all wonder why um, things are the way they are. But it's because we're moving away from God and we're moving away from the Christian principles that our founding fathers founded this country on. Our founding fathers were uh, so disillusioned at times that they thought that uh, they wondered if this country would even make it past um, their generation. But let's continue with the work they started and let's work together and let's make this country last for another 
200 something years. Um, I'm happy to be here and I'm thankful for all the uh, men and women that have sacrificed uh, family time, family holiday, or even um, the ultimate sacrifice laid down their life so that our freedoms can be taken care of. So on this, on this day, I have a, a special audio clip that I would like to run on the history of 4th of July, and I hope you have a great 4th of July. Thanks for listening. If you get something out of this podcast, don't forget to share it with your friends and following. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast, uh, go to Rowing with Sean Lewis on Anchor Podcast, and there's a way to do that too. Thanks so much, and God bless. And always, as always, sometimes you just have to find another way. Now I'm going to run the audio audio clip for y'all, and that'll be the end of the episode. God bless. delegate to the Second Continental Congress had been riding through the rain for hours, but he wouldn't stop before he reached Philadelphia the next day. Rodney was gravely ill from a cancerous facial tumor, but he was also deeply committed to independence. No amount of pain could keep him from voting. Rodney was one of those individuals who exhausted every possibility to come to an agreement uh, to avoid uh, war and that sort of thing. But when it finally came to the point in his mind that there was no alternative but independence, he was uh, staunchly in favor of it. Rodney stumbled into congressional chambers and cast his decisive vote. It was now settled. The colonies would fight for freedom. The decision had not been an easy one. In 1770, most American colonists thought of themselves as English. Many had English ancestors and were proud to be part of the British crown. The colonies were also an economic extension of Britain. Land grants and political offices were often decided in London, not here. But England wanted more back than the colonists were willing to give. The colonists were saddled with what they considered outrageous taxes on everything from stamps to property to the most British of imports, tea. With no one to speak for them in Parliament, the colonists protested the best way they knew how, by taking to the streets. In 1770, a Boston crowd threw rocks and snowballs at passing British troops. 
The startled soldiers responded with musket fire, killing five and wounding several others. The event was soon known as the Boston Massacre. But even with the violence, most colonists were not convinced that independence from England was a good idea. They still identified very strongly with the king as not only the monarch, but as the father. And they regarded their land holdings as being established by some kind of go-ahead from either the crown or from parliament. And so their property rights, both real and personal, were going to be threatened by this tremendously. To King George, the unrest in the colonies was totally unacceptable. These were his subjects, and rebellion would not be tolerated. So, on the 19th of April, 1775, King George ordered his troops to fire on the colonial militia at Lexington and Concord. Whether we liked it or not, war with England had begun. Worried colonists debated their options, but there was really very little choice. Towns across the country began to issue their own local declarations of independence from the British crown. People knew uh, that everything they had, and including their lives, were, were on the line. And they debate this with enormous seriousness. For example, the people of Ashby, Massachusetts, a, a, a very small town of no particular significance in the affairs of the state, more than that of any other town, said that they, the people of Ashby have voted that they will most solemnly defend that decision with their lives and fortunes. And somehow I find that terribly moving. The people had spoken. Now it was the national government's turn. Debate raged in the assembly room with patriot strongholds like Massachusetts and Vermont arguing for independence. And divided states like Pennsylvania and South Carolina wavering. Finally, on July 2nd, 1776, 12 colonies declared themselves independent, with only New York abstaining. That day, John Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail. The 2nd of July will be a memorable epoch in the history of America, he said. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. He was almost right. Weeks earlier, a committee had been drafted to write a national declaration of independence. As a senior statesman, John Adams would have been a logical choice to author the document. But the job went to the quiet and eloquent representative from Virginia, Thomas Jefferson. Adams argued that Jefferson should be made the draftsman for a whole series of reasons. One is that he wrote better than Adams did, which is probably true. Also, it was politically very important that a Virginian should do this rather than a Massachusetts man. Adams had argued and argued and argued on the floor of Congress in favor of independence to the point of obnoxiousness, probably. And he said that anything that he had written would be scrutinized much more carefully on the floor of Congress than something this relatively silent uh, Virginia delegate would write. Jefferson's draft was still ripped apart. Congress omitted, among other things, a section condemning Britain's slave policy, a difficult position to hold considering many Americans, including Jefferson, still had slaves of their own. There were also matters of style. 
Benjamin Franklin made some suggestions. He took the sentence, we hold these truths to be undeniable and sacred, and suggested, why don't we uh, substitute the word self-evident, so we have that famous line, we hold these truths to be self-evident, which is Franklin's doing. Finally, on the 4th of July, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was approved. John Hancock, the President of the Continental Congress, was the first one to sign it. There, he said, King George can read that without his spectacles. Signing this document was an incredibly dangerous activity. Here were some you know, very distinguished Americans, and if they signed this document and lost, they would all be at the end of a hangman's noose. And so I think it was incredibly um, appropriate that Franklin uh, said at the conclusion of these proceedings, we must all hang together, for surely if we don't, we will hang separately. Equally concerned were the citizens of Philadelphia, who heard their first reading on July 8th. Reaction was decidedly mixed. If you were to talk to someone who is a loyalist, to that person it would be the beginning of the end for civilization as they knew it. If you were to talk to someone, however, who is sympathetic toward the revolution, to them it would be the climax of everything that has come before. On July 9th, the Declaration of Independence was read aloud in New York City. The gathering crowd became so excited that a statue of King George was torn from its pedestal and melted into 42,000 Patriot bullets. The response to the Declaration of Independence was, maybe we will win this war now. I came across a wonderful statement from a, a man that said, now heart and hand can move together. I could hardly own the king, that is, profess my loyalty to the king and fight against him at the same time. Now the Americans had a clear, simple purpose. They were fighting for national independence. The fight would not be easy. The colonists lost some painful battles in the early days of the revolution, but winter victories at Trenton and Princeton meant that hope was still alive. When the 4th of July rolled around in 1777, Congress adjourned for a celebratory dinner, but was too concerned with running the war to plan an official celebration. The people, however, did not forget. People were celebrating without any official prompting. There were bonfires in the streets, which were supposed to be illegal. Fireworks, feasting, and a good deal of Tory bashing uh, as well. A lot of um, window glass uh, suffered when people didn't illuminate them as uh, all the ardent patriots were doing. The enthusiasm of 1777, however, quickly faded as the war dragged on year after year. During the darkest days of battle, the 4th of July became a time to rally the weary back behind a cause they were rapidly growing tired of. There really was very little to feel optimistic about. You had to be awfully committed to the idea that we needed independence, and going and listening to these speeches and making these toasts and hearing the rhetoric was an important way to get people to believe in the idea strongly enough that they would endure what must have seemed like an interminable war. Common symbols also helped pull the nation together. Patriot troops turned Yankee Doodle, an English insult for a badly dressed colonist, into a battle cry. 
and in 1777, Congress commissioned the first American flag. Although she gets credit for it, Betsy Ross probably did not stitch together the first stars and stripes. But believing she did has become an important part of colonial mythology. The idea of her sitting in her very small parlor, knitting together the entire country, you know, and the history of the country uh, within that symbolic structure of the flag is enormously attractive. It always has been. Betsy Ross, Yankee Doodle, and thousands of young lives all contributed to America's stunning victory over England in 1783. On that first independent 4th of July, bells rang out in every city in the nation except Charleston, South Carolina. And only because the British had taken all the bells there. It seemed that the holiday might have outlived its usefulness, but troubled times were just around the corner. And the 4th of July would become even more important to a nation struggling to discover who it was. To win the American Revolution, 13 colonies had pulled together for a common cause and brought about a miraculous victory. But once the fight was won, this wartime unity quickly began to fade. It's a great advantage to have an outside enemy if you need internal unity. Once the war was won, of course, that particular advantage went away. And there was a lot of receding into uh, the privacy and, and the, the, the local identity of, of individual states, which is what worried nationalists very much and was an important argument for the Constitution. In May of 1787, these men assembled in Philadelphia to write the Constitution of the United States. They wrote it to create a government beyond that of the states. Not everyone approved. Anti-Federalists believed the colonists had fought the British to get away from centralized power. This split showed itself in some of the angriest Fourth of July celebrations in American history. New York was having a tremendous battle over ratification. And in Albany, when the Anti-Federalists found out that the Federalists in town were celebrating, they came out with real guns and real sticks and the real intention of stopping the Federalist celebration and arrayed themselves across the street and the Federalists weren't going to be stopped and proceeded up the street and a battle ensued in which a number of people were badly injured and one man was actually killed. The idea of a federated nation was something pretty new and for many something pretty scary and so uh, one function that Independence Day uh, performed for the Americans of this period was to celebrate this new idea of a federated nation. From South Carolina to Maine, the 4th was celebrated in virtually the same way. A parade would wind through town with local militia and Revolutionary War veterans marching in patriotic splendor. The parade would then dead end at the courthouse steps, where speeches, sometimes hours of them, praised the men and women that had brought forth this great nation. After the speeches, there would be the firing of cannon, always 13, representing the 13 original states. The 
number 13 entered into uh, the ceremony in a very great many ways. Sometimes you would have 13 courses in the meal, but there would always be 13 toasts. 13 toasts for one nation. The 4th of July was helping America develop a national identity and a national past. The idea of belonging then had to be something that would be crafted, had to be learned. National currency can do it, a common flag can do it, or common holidays, such as Independence Day, when, as one correspondent put it, eight millions of Americans come together to celebrate on one day. There was something kind of magical about the idea that everyone in the nation is doing pretty much what you're doing at that very moment in time. American nationhood would get an even bigger boost in 1812 when festering ill will between Britain and the United States exploded into war. In what became known as the Second War of Independence, America did sustain some painful losses. In 1814, British troops overran Washington, D.C., and after eating dinner in the abandoned presidential mansion, set it on fire. But when the smoke cleared, American forces had beaten the English again. The victory had a galvanizing effect on the country and the 4th of July. It bred an exuberance that had not existed before, a trust, a belief that America was, um, was going places indeed. Uh, that this was not simply, uh, this republic, this first modern republic, was not a flash in the pan after all. This renewed sense of optimism is seen in an 1819 painting of the 4th in Philadelphia by American artist Louis Crimmel. In the center of the painting, young veterans from the War of 1812 embrace in mutual admiration. But war is not the focus of this scene. The 4th of July was changing from a somber remembrance of the revolution to a raucous holiday of American triumph. Off in the background, a military division goes through its paces, but hardly anyone notices. What's, to me, most um, interesting in this picture is the fact that there are almost no reference to the revolution itself. There is an elderly Revolutionary War veteran, who's um, obviously on a crutch and is, seems to be showing off his scars to a, a small group of rather unimpressed looking people. He may be the only person in this painting who really knows what the 4th of July was originally all about and no one's paying attention to him. The War of 1812 also gave us some of our finest Americana. Attorney Francis Scott Key went aboard a British ship in 1814 to negotiate the release of a prisoner. While on board, he witnessed the fierce bombing of Fort McHenry and was so moved that the tattered flag survived, he wrote a poem about it. Soon put to the tune of an old British drinking song, the Star-Spangled Banner took its place in the American Patriotic Songbook, but did not become the national anthem until 1931. The war also gave us perhaps the most American symbol of all, Uncle Sam. Sam Wilson.
Wilson ran a meatpacking business in Troy, New York, where he stamped his barrels bound for the army with a U.S. Uncle Sam's beef was soon shortened to Uncle Sam. An icon combining Yankee pride and American patriotism was born. In this desperate search for national symbols, you have the emergence of regional characters. And one of these is the Yankee. Tall and thin and a rail splitter, fiercely independent, very quiet uh, kind of figure. And Uncle Sam, I think, developed out of the coming together of the 4th of July spirit with the character of the Yankee. Like the quiet, stalwart Uncle Sam, America approached its 50th birthday in 1826 with a certain amount of awe. It seemed like a miracle. Thirteen colonies had blossomed into 24 states, and the world's first experiment in modern democracy was thriving. Then, on the 4th of July that year, another strange miracle. Thomas Jefferson, who was 87, died at noon. That same day, John Adams also passed away. The Founding Fathers had gotten America to age 50. The rest would be up to us. The Declaration of Independence was an extraordinary document, a triumph of the Enlightenment and the rights of man. But not every man. The irony of celebrating the 4th of July and reading the Declaration of Independence in a nation of slaveholders is hard to escape. Um, the 4th of July, in fact, was a major holiday in the South. The Southern planters gave their slaves two holidays a year, Christmas and the 4th of July. The masters of the slaves would have the big barbecue for the slaves. They would kill a large animal, an ox, a goat depending on the size of the slave population, and that would be one of the few times when the slaves would be given the license to come together to celebrate and to consume a lot of protein together because they were protein-starved people. But to many, Independence Day seemed obscene in a land where some men, women, and children lived in bondage. Frederick Douglass spoke for his enslaved brethren in 1852. This 4th of July is yours, not mine, he said. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems is inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Slavery would be one of the issues that ripped the nation apart. By February 1861, seven southern states had broken with the Union, and on April 12th, Confederate troops attacked the federal garrison at Fort Sumter. The war between the states had begun. On the 4th of July that year, President Lincoln called a special session of Congress. It authorized him to recruit half a million Union soldiers. Throughout the war, the North used the 4th of July as a rallying point, a time to throw the weight of history behind the Union cause. 
The South also used the Fourth to further their agenda. They felt they were rebelling against an unjust central government as abusive as England had been a hundred years earlier. Southern Fourth of July celebrations claimed that the war between the states was the new American Revolution. Both sides may have claimed moral superiority, but the whole nation paid a painfully high price for the Civil War. On January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln relieved some of the heartache by freeing the Southern slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery was now officially against the law, but the news spread slowly throughout the country. Some remote areas, like East Texas, did not hear about it for years. By legend, it took a great deal of time, maybe as much as two and a half years, because the planters didn't want this word to get out. And East Texas, frankly, was at the edge of the frontier at that point. Lincoln sent an emissary with the news, and legend has it he arrived in Texas on June 19, 1865. The newly freed Texas slaves began to celebrate that day as Independence Day, and they haven't missed a year since. In Lufkin, Texas, and towns like it throughout the South, Juneteenth is still celebrated as African American Independence Day. Juneteenth is the freeing of slaves in the South, and that is important to me. And it just means uh, my black Americans, fellow black Americans that came along a long time ago, uh, they don't have to work in the cotton fields any longer, but they can rise up and fulfill their lives and their careers to the best of their abilities. We march and stand here today because we are a proud group of people, proud of our race, proud of our struggle, proud of our future. Juneteenth now has maintained a lot of the old-fashioned way in which holidays were celebrated as in the early Fourth of July celebrations. We still have a heavy focus on the speeches that are made, on the sense of community that's being uh, propound it, at least for the extent of that day. Even though it took Texas until 1979 to recognize Juneteenth as a state holiday, we as blacks have been celebrating Juneteenth as a holiday and recognizing it ever since 1865. The Juneteenth celebration, it makes me extremely proud because it's good to see my home people get together and unite. It's good to see, see us come together for a common goal. Today, Juneteenth helps heal the wounds of slavery. In 1876, those wounds were still fresh in the minds of Northerners and Southerners alike. Yet even with the carnage, the country had endured. And on the eve of our 100th birthday, that alone was cause for celebration. America was also realizing its power as an industrial nation. For the first time, American manufacturing could compete with anything Europe had to offer. On our centennial, we invited the world to Philadelphia to a coming out party of American industrial might. 
the Chamber of Commerce people throughout the United States wanted people to believe that this was America at its best. What it said actually was America is at the forefront of invention, of productivity, of manufacturing. That's what was being celebrated. Visitors gazed upon the amazing Corliss engine, George Washington's false teeth, and a brand new wonder, the telephone. It was a world-class pageant of American ingenuity and perseverance, but the self-congratulations were a bit premature. On July 4, 1876, a gala reading of the Declaration of Independence had just finished. Suddenly, a group of women led by Susan B. Anthony stormed the stage and handed the reader a Declaration of Women's Rights. It was a completely revolutionary idea. Of course, radical and cranky and not to be taken seriously. But they made their point, and it might take them another half century to win the vote. But on that day, they used the 4th of July to point out that there still was a group of Americans who wanted rights and hadn't been given. These kinds of 4th of July politics, however, were slowly fading into the background as America industrialized in the late 19th century. As manufacturing becomes more important, the seasons become somewhat less important, and we develop into the period in which industrial time becomes much more important. What are the ways of marking out industrial time? Well, the week and the weekend are the most important features of the industrial world. In an industrial world, the only thing better than a weekend is a long weekend, which the 4th of July rapidly became. By the turn of the century, America's independence was no longer even remotely in question. We could finally relax, and on the 4th of July, that's exactly what we would do. Fireworks have always been at the heart of the 4th of July. No Independence Day was complete without them. But these early noise and light shows were fraught with danger. People in urban environments particularly were deathly afraid of fires. And there were quite a number of very close calls as far as uh, some, some real serious fires were concerned. So on a day where there was plenty of alcohol uh, and gunpowder... These were legitimate concerns. In 1866, Portland, Maine nearly burned to the ground after a particularly boisterous 4th of July. But fires weren't the only hazard. Little toy cannons often exploded accidentally, sending shards of metal into those who held them. Tetanus infection was a common occurrence on July 5th, 6th, and 7th. And back then, there was no cure. By 1900, firework reform became an urgent social cause. Women like Mrs. Isaac Rice, a medical doctor from New York City, told concerned audiences that more children had been hurt by Fourth of July fireworks than soldiers died in the American Revolution. The progressive era was the time in which you have women that are beginning to establish their political sensibilities. And so you have uh, 
a great many prohibition movements that emerge at that time. It's not only alcohol. And anything that threatens the health of the family are ideas that are part of the public conversation. Reformers sponsored a PR blitz that undoubtedly saved hundreds of young lives. But in 1905, fireworks may have only been part of the panic well-bred women like Mrs. Rice were feeling. Americans felt flooded. They felt overwhelmed by the sudden and immense numbers of people who were not like them. Americans spoke English and were Protestant. And people coming from overseas spoke Italian, Polish, Russian, and lots of other languages. And they were Catholic and they were Jewish. And they were so different seeming. And the solution was to make them into Americans. Once again, the 4th of July came to the rescue. In cities throughout the country, Independence Day became a time when bewildered immigrants were taught to sing, salute, and parade, as well as the most established Yankee. Most of the immigrants who came here from other countries wanted nothing more dearly than to be Americans. And they were only too happy to be invited to participate in a 4th of July parade. You didn't have to force them to make their children learn English. They wanted to learn English. They turned out in droves when night schools were offered. And they were delighted to be included in every American event that was offered. This patriotism would come in handy. When America entered World War II in 1941, the 4th of July took on an urgency it hadn't had in years. Invasion Commander General Eisenhower and Ground Troop Commander General Omar Bradley as the 4th of July is celebrated with thundering drama on the second front. The fireworks for Independence Day are cannon. Fireworks for the Nazi and load the guns. Not just on the battlefield, but the home front also rallied behind the cause on the 4th of July. At times of greatest stress nationally, you need statements of national unity and national community. And the 4th of July during World War II, I remember very well, because every neighborhood would have its own parade. You would have the declaration read and sermons. There was a deep sense that this was a time in which we should remember our past. And it worked. It worked. It was thrilling. all-out patriotism would not last. After the war ended, America retreated to the backyard, and the fourth came to mean a private barbecue for friends and family. Sometimes whole towns would get together, but instead of the patriotic exercises of days gone by, these community events had potato sack races and the rolling pin toss. While the G.I.s were delighted there was nothing left to fight for, their children were not quite so sure. 
Instead of the clearly defined struggles of World War II, they saw their friends sent to die in a war few really understood. And they saw the first American president in history resign in disgrace from office. By the mid-1970s, America was a deeply divided nation. But we had a party to plan for the bicentennial. When people began to think about the bicentennial, there was an assumption that it would be something like the centennial, which is to say that you would put on a big international exposition somewhere, a World's Fair. And the problem was, the years that were ahead of the bicentennial were some of the most confusing years in American history. We were preoccupied, overwhelmed by the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. It was a time when our nation lacked leadership and was as divided as it's been at any time since the Civil War itself. We never pulled off a world celebration, but America was not going to let the bicentennial pass unnoticed. Washington, D.C. threw a huge outdoor party, complete with homespun crafts and an all-American fife and drum corps. In Boston, a group of veterans reenacted the Boston Tea Party. But right next to them, a sign of the times, was a counter-demonstration protesting big business and corporate sponsorship. No matter what your politics, there was no lack of imagination in expressing the bicentennial spirit. In New York City, hundreds of tall ships sailed into the harbor on the 4th of July. Never before had so many antique sailing vessels assembled in one place, and the majesty of the gesture spoke louder than words. Ten years later, when the Statue of Liberty celebrated her centennial, America had another chance for a national birthday party. We wouldn't waste the opportunity this time. In some ways, in 1986, we had the bicentennial that we hadn't been able to plan ten years earlier. By 1986, America had been finished with the war and the civil rights movement and feeling great about itself for years already. And so we had a prosperous country feeling good about itself and ready to plan a major celebration. And it did, a glorious celebration. A barbecue, fireworks, these are the elements of almost every American 4th of July. But the meaning of the 4th is as varied as the people who celebrate it. Bristol, Rhode Island has the oldest continuous...
continuous 4th of July celebration in America. And every year the town population quadruples for one of the grandest spectacles of pomp and patriotism in America. Bristol's an old-fashioned town. Bristol is proud of being old-fashioned, and I think if the word old-fashioned uh, means that we're not so sophisticated that we throw out things that are heartwarming and reach the heart, then we certainly are old-fashioned. Hey, hey, hey. The town of Bristol and the Bristol Fourth of July Committee would like to welcome you all to the patriotic exercises and I'd like to make a decree that it will not rain on our parade. Thank you. The day starts off as the 4th of July did 200 years ago with speeches. Here they call them patriotic exercises. Those of us who grew up here know that no matter what our ethnic background, that in Bristol we learned that you work hard, you are dedicated to church and family, and that you serve your country when called. Listening to all these patriotic exercises, it really makes you think about how this country came to be, how, how everything, you know, we, we couldn't have had it if, you know, they weren't fighting for, for their freedom. Start the parade, go ahead. All set. The heart of Bristol's festivities is the parade. Three miles of marching bands, beauty queens, and unadulterated Americana. across the country, the town of Toppenish, Washington, celebrates a very different kind of 4th of July. For the last 100 years, Independence Day in Toppenish has meant the annual rodeo. The people who fought for us to get our independence were just like the people that, that won the West. You know, they had their dreams and their beliefs and they fought for them and 
they did everything they could to believe in it. And that's kind of like the rodeo cowboy. They're fighting for what they believe in. Toppenish may celebrate the glory of the Old West, but its demographics look toward the future. Over half the town population is Hispanic, the workers and children of workers who came to pick hops in the Yakima Valley. Fifteen percent of the town is white, and a quarter are Native Americans, members of the Yakima tribe. Here, the 4th of July fuses many cultures, and the town celebrates the freedom to do just that. Cowboys and Yakima Nation have always partnered very well around the 4th of July. There's some mutual respect that has developed over the years as the friendships grow and things like that. You see the flag flying, it's really a deep feeling. Even though my folks came from Mexico, I'm 100% American. <laughs> People are starting to realize now that we're all one group and we're either going to make it or not make it together. And so we've got to cooperate and work together. The first 4th of July marked the birth of a nation. More than 200 years later, we celebrate patriotism, hometown pride, and national unity. The power of this holiday is just as strong today as it was in 1776. Thank you to my awesome narrators for helping me make this a, a special Fourth of July episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hope you celebrate with your friends and family. Like my narrator said, you know, there's still a lot we have to work on, but there's a lot we got right. So as always, uh, sometimes you just have to find another way. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this episode. That's a little bit of both of your eye history for you. Don't forget to subscribe. And share with your friends and family. And remember, uh, what we've done here in America is better than anyone has to offer, like my narrator said. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this country. God bless you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye now.